Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another episode of the Painting Pictures Podcast. I'm Gabriel Roberts, and I'm coming to you from Craftsbury, Vermont. I've got another um, Skype interview to share with you today, a conversation with Gabe Vest, old friend of mine from Paonia, Colorado, who now lives in Bonnie, Scotland. He lives in Glasgow, I think. I always get Glasgow and Dublin mixed up. I'm sure that's a common problem. But I know that he lives in Scotland, not Ireland, and I'm pretty sure that he lives in Glasgow. Gabe is currently spending most of his time delivering aid, uh, essential things like groceries, to refugee families in Glasgow. So this is something that he's gotten involved in. He's lived there for a couple years. His wife is is a native of, of Scotland. And through his work uh, initially with, with getting bicycles to refugees that are arriving so they can have transportation, he's now gotten into delivering, being one of the few people that's actually driving a van and uh, putting on protective gear and delivering these essential items to refugees who are pretty well isolated and powerless, um, lacking a lot of um, information. Of course, they some of them don't speak the language. Um, a lot of them don't have cell phones. It sounds like the, the services of, of providing cell phones and providing some grocery funds are pretty weak. Um, so he's he's been doing a lot to try to find alternative ways to get people a phone that works and get them a debit card that works so they can buy groceries so they can feed themselves. Um, it's pretty incredible. He's um, an inspiration to me for uh, the way he's thrown himself into this work. And I'm really grateful to have him on the show and to uh, hear his perspective. I think that it's um, this conversation, I, I think, is one that is going on a lot in various degrees on Facebook um, and hopefully amongst people. I think it's a good conversation to have. And essentially, the conversation, um, I think it, it more or less... Well, it's it's hard to boil it down to, to one particular thing, but um, both Gabe and I <laughs> are get a little bit fired up in this conversation. I, I haven't listened to it back. I know that if I did, I'm sure I would find a lot of places where I wish I had brought up some other study that I know about or, or something like that, and I, I'm sure that Gabe feels the same way. Um, it's interesting that both of us... Uh, f- are are uh, a little bit emotionally involved, um, charged in this. Um, both of us feel like this current coronavirus pandemic is is bringing up some larger issues. Um, I think what Gabe's focused on, and I think what a lot of people are focused on, is the population's uh, ability to uh, or willingness to listen to. Um, public health guidance. Um, and I think that what he sees, and I think what a lot of people see, is a uh, is 
is is a is a lack of that willingness and, and the way that that varies sort of cultural to culture. So he, he brings up China and South Korea and other places as examples of where people had a very unified reaction to this and contrasts that you know to to what's going on in the United States and the United Kingdom. And from his perspective, um, he thinks that you know that's a problem basically. Um, and then I'm kind of on the other side of saying, well, I'm kind of with the people that don't want to listen to these authoritarian uh, rules and regulations. I'm questioning the motives of organizations like the WHO and the CDC. Um, and so it's a very it's a very interesting thing because we're in a time where um, our individual choices are uh, purportedly affecting the, l the well-being of others. Um, and so I think it brings up a really interesting ethical and moral discussion. And I, I, I think that Gabe and I did a pretty good job um, uh, staying in a conversational mode. And I'm, I'm just struck by the fact that um, we can have such a difference of opinion. And yet... Um, have such a deep, uh, strong friendship. Like I would do anything for this guy. And, and I know that he'd do anything for me. And, uh, if you look at what he's doing, I mean, it's, uh, that's as good as it gets. It's, it's the, to me, it's the ultimate sort of example of human beings, um, you know, putting the collective before themselves or, or being, uh, helping those less fortunate. And, um, so it's it's just a uh, it's just an interesting time where um, two people that can be so closely aligned can uh, can have such a such a strong disagreement and so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, big thanks to Gabe for uh, taking the time to do this with me and. Um, Again, I haven't listened to it yet. I'm looking forward to listening to it back and. Um, you know, I, I'd welcome, as as always, anybody that has um, has thoughts on this or wants to join the discussion. Send me an email to GabeRoberts at gmail.com. And, uh, and, and let's keep it going. I, I think that there's a... I think that as a society, we've we've kind of lost our aptitude for having political discussions or philosophical discussions. And I think there's a lot of really interesting shit that this brings up. There's a lot of different ways that one can think about one's role in uh, humanity and, and, and also humanity's role on this planet and um, the, you know, the, the appropriate role of government and um, science and medicine and, all these things, it's, these are all things that I think people have talked about uh, for years. And I think it's, I think that we've, our discussions have really broken down <laughs> pretty, pretty seriously recently where we just can't have them and, and, um, and people get upset and, uh, and people aren't thinking for themselves, aren't thinking clearly Um and are afraid of what other people think of them and their opinions. And I, I think that things like Facebook, which, which is an amazing platform that allows us to stay in touch with people, has, has kind of hurt our ability um, in the same way that, that, you know, we've gone away from, from correspondence and writing letters and reading books. It's, it's all gotten um, 
a bit immediate and uh, perhaps lacking a little bit in uh, in in thought or uh, constructive quality. So I'm trying. I'm trying to. Uh, I'm trying to get better at, at having these discussions without getting emotionally charged and without trying to uh, convince somebody of something. Um, but it's very interesting to be in a time where there seems to be um, a need or an idea that uh, people kind of all buying into something is is somehow important to our our health. And I. Uh, and, that, and that may be true. And so the question is, what do we, what, what is it that we need to buy into, <laughs> or not? Um, very tricky, very tricky. But anyway, thanks you all for joining, for coming along uh, the ride. Again, if you have any questions, send an email to GabeRoberts at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Gabriel Quinton Vest, aka Evil Gabe. Uh, who's uh, doing some very not evil things out there in Scotland. Okay, folks, on to the chat. Okay, I have to tell you that you're being yeah, recorded. Yeah, okay. Oh, man, Gabe, things have changed. I just looked. Our last conversation was on January 17th. Wow, gnarly. <laughs> kind of right before things before started time. to yeah. get a little like weird. March 8th, March 8th, like when they shut the NBAs, we got, or March 9th is when shit got real crazy for me, like. Kings were just about to take on the Pelicans at home, fighting for that eighth seed. Yeah. And they canceled. Yeah, I wanted the game. to see the Kings get there. I like the Kings with my Houston boy on there. Uh, the little dude, he's badass. Aaron Fox. Oh, yeah. Is he from Houston? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is badass. He's a killer. Yeah, I love this game. Um, but we all know the Rockets were going to win the title. So, real shame. Might still. They start the season back up. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, at that um, point you were you were talking about you were so your work was basically you were getting bikes out and doing uh like workshops get, at get schools bikes. and Yeah, yeah. So I had two jobs. One we we just kind of do like community bike projects in like a poor yeah. community in Scotland and the other one is just refugees and sound seekers. We just give them bikes, that's all we do. And so like a thousand bikes. Yeah, so far. But we shut that one down pretty much March 9th for the moment to figure out what the hell. And then started to do offering like help with delivery of food and stuff. And then that just blew up to where it's so gnarly. <laughs> so the right. So the deliver the food delivery stuff that came out of the bikes for refugees program you were doing. Yeah. So bikes for refugees is a registered charity. 
It's run by a board of directors that's volunteers. I'm like the first ever paid employee of it. Oh, now cool. there's a second that's in Edinburgh. So it's like they had a, it was already running kind of like the bike co-op in Paonia before they hired me, they were getting bikes out, but then they got enough money to like, Hey, we could pay a guy part-time to try to make this better. And so we like, I was able to really blow it up, like get way, 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 way more bikes out. Um, and then my boss is like amazing at fundraising. So it's always like, Oh, we got a grant for this. Here's an electric van. Here's a new workshop tools. Here's this cool. more helmets, more bikes, more lights, more locks, more everything. So then when coronavirus, like we can't really keep doing what we were doing, having volunteer workshop with everybody in a big meal. So we stopped, but I'm like, kind of feel like a dick if I don't use all those tools to help the community in a different yeah. way. Right. So Cause you're like, in touch. Okay, you know about all these people, all these refugees and you're yeah. yeah. Just there's a bunch of them are the hell. Our volunteers. Yeah. A bunch of them are our volunteers. So we started with just a message to those people. That's like, Hey, we can't promise anything, but we want to make sure that vulnerable people have the tools they need to isolate if they if they want to you know if they need to because of like i'm going by the scottish government guidance there's like a list of pre-existing health conditions where you should fully shield and not leave your house there's obviously if you've had any symptoms or anyone in your household has so if you get on that list it's probably a decent percentage of people should be shielding sadly probably many that aren't um but i was just thinking like it's a pain in the ass even if you have money and stuff and speak a language to shield but like if you don't have anybody or anything like there's no fucking way there's just no fucking way. there's no way <laughs> right. right so i thought to protect us all maybe the best thing to do is start by trying to make it easier for people to shield that need yeah. to and then uh that just grew into like it's just become really bad bad situation a lot of people's benefits are getting cut off and getting dragged out of their homes and stuff so got involved with people that know more about it than me and that's why we're just trying to help them with everything everything from smartphones to families that don't have one so their kids can access educational stuff books art supplies paint uh toys clothes dishes some of these families don't even have dishes to cook on even if we bring them food so like that yeah so the refugees Glasgow's been a a hub of of sorts for refugees. Yes. So, like, if you come into London and request asylum, I don't know exactly how it works, but there's like a few places, areas in in the UK that they'll send you. So that it's controlled by a department of government called the Home Office, and they kind of manage like immigration stuff. And so, if you request asylum, you're given some status while they process that claim what happens to a lot of people is the claim gets denied but it's not like a full rejection it's, it's like you're given more time to collect the evidence that they're asking for so what it ends up being is they like nickel and dime you to death they set up 10 million appointments and interviews that you have to go do to work out everything just to get your benefit which will be like 35 bucks a week and that has to cover like your phone bill, your food, your shoes, your, you know, toothbrush, everything, everything. So you might get some money for heating and you might get a flat. Usually you'd get like a, at least a roommate situation in some dump, <laughs> you know, but 35 pounds a week in the, and that's kind of like the good case scenario. A lot of people are getting zero. So, so do like, that's pretty much how it works. So they'll send you, a lot of people are just in that limbo for maybe years. 
And then maybe it's just fully denied, but they don't deport them. And then they're just off the system, not eligible for any benefits. It's kind of like street homeless. Or um, sometimes it's approved, like, uh, and you're just a full refugee. And then you're just like anybody else here. You can get benefits if you're not working or whatever, unemployment or help, you know. And then... Some people, they refuse the asylum claim, but they say you can stay, but not with indefinite leave to remain. But that usually ends up being good. That, that means you can work. And then you kind of like have to check back in with them in a few years. And generally, from what I understand, as long as you haven't made any trouble for yourself, then you'll be good to stay. But that still creates uncertainty because it's like, do you want to build a life here if they might just make you leave in three years or two years? Or, you know, so... Yeah, you, it's, I mean, it's a whole thing. I'm not an expert on it. So, you know, podcast listeners out there, look up what's actually going on. If you want to talk to me about giving people bikes, I'm a totally qualified expert. Everything else, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. Like, you wanted to talk about some data and look at numbers, I think you were saying. And... I think I just feel so strongly right now that um, like public health is something we all share like an interest in and a responsibility in. And we rely on whatever methods of cohesion we have between us. Sadly, one of the biggest is the governments that we live under. And it's hard to trust them and it's hard to trust our institutions, but when we are distrustful of them and do our own research, I think many, 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 many of us like overestimate our ability to um, like do the hard work of learning how to analyze data or vet it. And I, I believe in empowering people to do things themselves, but more times than not, like, and I'm, I'm maybe consciously incompetent at it right now. Like I kind of know what I don't know because I did study math in college for five years, but I wouldn't say I do it enough to be competent right now. So I'm probably consciously incompetent, but I think most people are just unconsciously incompetent that are doing it. And it's literally like handing not a car mechanic, a bunch of tools and popping the hood of your Beamer and just being like, yeah, dude, go for it. It's making a weird noise. Like, they will fuck up your car every time, right? And <laughs> handing somebody a bunch of data and being like, yeah, do some statistical analysis, badass. Like, it, the result's just, like, garbage. And then everybody sits there and has these really smart and thoughtful talks based on that analysis that was usually garbage to begin with. And I think it ends up being the bike shed theory in practice. Have you heard of that thing? Yes, yeah. I looked it up after you mentioned it, and I think yeah. that's a really good analogy for for what's yeah. going on right now. I mean, I fall into it. Like, there's some small part of the data that I'll feel like I'll understand or I'll read an article, and then, oh, yeah, I want to talk about that and share that bit of knowledge. But, like, shit, man, it's really disrespectful to epidemiologists, statisticians, like a lot of and, – and especially – public servants and civil servants to just be like, oh, I could do better. You guys are a bunch of idiots. Totally. Yeah, maybe you should look into ingesting bleach or something. Okay. Or like I can, what I can look at is 
like the UK government versus the Scottish government here. The UK government switched last week from stay home, save lives, to stay alert and sort of relaxed and muddled all these guidelines. And it's just so hard to get people to follow anything. The most important thing is clear communication about what's going on and what people need to do and like hit people over the head with really smart public health messages in public communication, press conferences, ads, freeway signs, billboards, everything to get people to change behavior. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. And so having a muddled message about stay alert, which nobody knows what the fuck that means. (laughs) (laughs) What does that fucking mean? Stay alert? (laughs) If I tell you to stay alert, do you know what to do about coronavirus? Like, no. Stay home, probably a little better. So so Scotland broke with them and stayed with stay home. And then the UK is like, or England really is like, fuck you guys, you're part of the UK. It should all be the same message. But the UK is actually four countries and three of them have stuck with stay home. So that's Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. <laughs> so only England, you know, but they're like, come on, guys, get with the program. And it's kind of like, well, I get that everybody's making hard choices and economic impacts cost lives. But I get really down when I read anything that seems to minimize the impact of the virus, compare it to the flu, question the seriousness, like there's total variance in the numbers, new numbers are coming out, like we don't know, projections are going to change, things that were 90% likely to happen don't always happen, just because I say it's 90% likely to happen, if it doesn't happen, doesn't mean I was wrong. Yeah. So like, what I see is a lot of stuff online that's like, well, the mortality rate isn't even as bad as we thought. Eh, maybe... It's pretty clear, though, to look at total deaths, all causes, which that data lags, whatever, six weeks, a month or more for most places. And that can tell a little bit better picture. But even then, you have to look at that's total deaths, all causes in a situation where everybody locked down. Right. Things are completely So there's way less flus. There's way less flus. There's way more domestic violence. There's probably way less car accidents. Exactly. There's all kinds of other shit I never thought of. But I think anyone would argue that lockdown, especially the first month or two of lockdown, is probably less less deaths than a society not locked down. Makes sense to me. But what we've seen here in Scotland and what France has seen and every country that I've looked at their data, their total deaths were up, way up, right? Really? So... Yeah. So maybe like in France, the rise in total deaths was largely attributed to deaths. Like, you know, there were something like 20% over normal and that 20% was accounted for in their coronavirus deaths. So people are saying maybe, maybe they are better counting what's actually a coronavirus death and they're catching all of them. Whereas other people are undercounting. I don't know. In Scotland, they pretty much all but admitted they're undercounting, but our total deaths are up, like alarmingly up. Really? So, yeah. And and, and I think like it, it, the data is going to be really slow in the U.S. and it's be really weird. But like, there's no fucking way New York total deaths aren't way up. Like, there's just no way. I'll bet you anything. Right. You know. And so when people are like, "Oh, it's just you know, it's not that bad," it's like, you got to remember these are total deaths. And that's when we went into full lockdown, right? <laughs> right. So 
if people are like, I don't know, I went nuts. I saw a Paul Black post on Facebook. I just went ballistic where it's like, um, yeah, look, like first you guys were saying it was going to be a million deaths. And now you're saying only 60,000 because, and it's like, yeah, because everybody locked down. <laughs> then, right. Then you project fewer deaths. It's not like you guys projected the wrong thing. Um, and, and that's just an example of like, you know, that then this whole sparks this whole huge discussion on his page and I'm looking at it and it's like, nobody, nobody on there could pass any quiz in like statistics 101. No one, <laughs> you know, so it's like, but let's just all hammer out an argument 500 comments deep. And it stems from nobody believes anybody anymore. Nobody believes the CDC or CBS News right. or PBS News, Fox News. And that's right. a real shame. So I think it's important to, like, find an institution, you know, you can trust or, or multiple ones and really and, um, and sort of trust in, in some expertise and really maybe spend more time researching that those institutions are giving you facts and good faith from someone with real expertise, then try to like do all this analysis and make judgments ourselves. Are you I familiar with the report from the Royal Institute? Uh, yeah. So that was the one that was, it was saying like, um, 20, June of 2021 or, or something is how long we need to be locked down in the UK originally or something. It is was, it I actually, yeah, I actually haven't looked at it that, the latest news about it is that the doctor or the main scientist who authored it just had a scandal where it was found out he had a, his mistress visiting throughout lockdown. Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, totally. That's the head doctor of the UK. And by the way, that's not just him. Like, I delivered food to this isolating asylum-seeking woman the other day. Uh -huh. And I, like, knock on the door and start running down the stairs. And out of the corner of my eye, I see, like, some dude in his underwear come out and get the food. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, nice isolating lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, isolating, anyway, that, eh? What are you? My understanding, huh? is that that, my understanding is that that report was in large part responsible for the UK's uh, change in course. I, my understanding is initially they were uh, going to keep immunity. schools. Yeah, and they were going to yeah. keep schools open, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Then this report projected whatever, huge numbers of deaths. And then it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just that report. I think that report was like the one that the press glommed onto way before the report came out. Lots of thinking people and science people, most all of them were like, your herd immunity strategy is nonsense and amounts to negligent homicide of thousands if not tens of thousands of people because there's no proof that even any herd immunity exists with the coronavirus <laughs> you know and uh i mean they were they were hammering the uk government long before that report came out and i don't know the exact details of it but i remember it painted a really grim picture that like oh yeah. shit like if we try to do herd immunity we're completely fucked which i think is the scientific consensus like herd immunity is no plan for this I don't know about that. I mean, that, well, just to go back to that report, we're talking about, you know, experts and epidemiologists and stuff, that report, as, my, as far as I can tell, didn't have sign-off from uh, a good number of experts. And, and there are 
there are mathematicians and epidemiologists that have basically said that report seemed to be baseless. And, and of course, it has since the numbers haven't even approached the, the same ballpark as that projection. Well, I think so. I think the projections in that report were based on uh, like no measures in place. So, well, they had a lockdown. Right. Right. Yeah. So the the numbers, like the people who were like, see, the report was wrong after we locked down and the numbers went down. You know, that's a brain cramp. I don't know. Like, I'm not qualified, even if I did look at that report to say how accurate or the methodology. But um, I've looked at different projections from different institutions and different countries and also like the policy leaders in different countries. And I think like, you know, France is pretty respected as a super healthy place, public health wise, with like a killer healthcare system, although maybe struggling more than in recent years. And and they've been super hard hit by it. So they have like a large sample size of experience. And we're still learning about this thing. But, you know, they know that herd immunity is a way to kill vulnerable populations like cause life altering debilitations in many, many thousands of people needlessly. Um, and that like the way you see how this virus went through the places it went through earlier. Um, everybody has that's tried to have the super relaxed approach has tightened and tightened and tightened their approach as like the deaths and the resultant uh, horrors have mounted. Like, just look at Italy. Um, look at Spain. Look at Germany. Look at France. Look at South Korea. Um, you know, like, like I read a thing the other day by an American in South Korea about what steps were undertaken there to stop the virus. And it's it's just so way beyond even what we're seeing here. Like, what we're seeing here is a joke, pretty much, I think. Like, 15,000 people were still landing at Heathrow last week every day. With right. no checks. <laughs> like that's insane to me. Like you can't you can't fly here from Ireland, but you could fly from like Ireland to Aberzaibajan and then fly straight to Edinburgh and just get off and get on a train. Like it's maybe they really are secretly doing a herd immunity approach or whatever, but I believe this thing spreads too fast and has too many dire consequences for too many people to, for that to be okay. And it's really, really inconvenient. It sucks. It's going to cost shitloads of people their job and their money and cause all kinds of other deaths. And that's a super uncomfortable, gross thing to realize that freaks me out every day. But I mean, I guess it'd be easier to believe like, oh, well, shit, just the science is wrong. We should just let this thing run through and buck up and then we could get back to normal. And like, no, well, I don't buy it. Yeah. I hear you, and I think that it's a it's a question of of what's what's actually productive, and right. I agree that uh, just um, casting shade on the actions that public health organizations are taking or whatever is not in and of itself productive, um, and I think it's it's a challenge to uh, to find a way to, at the same time, um, 
use your brain and and think about um, what's really going on. Um, and also, yeah. <laughs> because my what I see is that there are there are sort of like two different big storylines out there in the media that are pretty well in conflict with each other. Yeah, I mean, the Overton window is enormous on this, which is the ex acceptable range of discourse. Yes. Um, but I'm my Overton window is much, much smaller. Like, I'm, I'm going with what peer-reviewed science says, um, and there isn't much of it on this, but in general about how pandemics and coronaviruses operate. It's not like this is some bizarre occurrence that was never predicted or foreseen. People have known this was a possibility. This was coming. We've had teams of doctors around the world fighting to prevent something like this happening that have all known it could for many years. And like, I think that it's important in humanity that everybody do independent thinking and approach stuff from different angles and use their own mind. That's how creativity happens and problems get solved. But, but um, something like this, it's like when people sort of overqualify themselves in their own minds, and it's, it's hard not to. I think they question stuff that's really simple, like the idea that Dr. Fauci is testifying to Congress and everybody's like, he is so full of shit. Like, we should listen to what Kellyanne Conway is saying just boggles my mind, like a dude who's been an epidemiologist at the CDC without being discredited ever since like 1980 something. It's like all of a sudden we're going to question that I really, because of my research on Twitter, am going to question his thoughts on a pandemic now because I know more or he's lying for some weird conspiracy. And like, I can see there's a, a world where it's possibility that Fauci is lying for some weird reason, but not like every leading epidemiologist everywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, Gabe, the there, are lots of, and there are lots of epidemiologists that are questioning the response fitting this. Right, but not not the leading ones. So, like, um, well, not the ones I mean, that were that are in Sweden, positions. That Sweden, the Sweden is doing it a little different, and some of their scientists are 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 preaching a different approach. But I'm just saying, if you look at like the top public health officials in France, China, Germany, Iran, Turkey, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, they're not all like in a big conspiracy sure. to trick us. And the fact that they're all largely coming to the same conclusions, even though it's taking some a little longer, you know, based on how the virus is getting there and whatever, like they're not all tricking us. And Fauci largely believe, believes and agrees with what all those people are saying about the behavior of this virus, the general principles of how to prevent spread, although some are much stricter than others. And I think that's down to sort of behavioral science. What can we get people to do and what can't we? And how does government messaging work and stuff? Um, but like there, to me, it's just... Like, I don't I don't believe in a world where somebody has enough power to get all those people to lie in concert with each other. Like, no. I hear you. I hear you. I, I think that 
that there is a dangerous uh, there is a dangerous trap where uh, by being distrustful of a certain organization, you can throw out all of the hundreds of thousands of people that are working their asses off to try to keep people safe. And totally, totally. I mean, it's just like, it's like the federal government is full of shit. It's led by Trump. He's full of shit. Okay. Like the guy who empties the trash cans at Yellowstone Park works for the federal government. and He's probably like a pretty right. honest trash can emptier. So like right. all up and down the chain, you know, they're at the CDC and the NIH. There's all these doctors and epidemiologists and, you know, you don't don't see any of them stepping out and just being like, this is all fake. In fact, like, well, you do, Gabe, you do. There are a lot of epidemiologists. Yeah, you can find you can find 10 people out of the 20,000. You can find a YouTube video with shitloads of doctors, but you're not. It doesn't make it like a peer reviewed consensus. And the people I think the people like in charge and at the positions of running public health organizations probably elevated to that position in life for a reason. Well, Uh, yes, but I think you have to look also at the conflict of interest in these organizations like the WHO. Sure. I think think they're pressured to open up. I think a lot of places are pressured to open up. Like, I don't think the WHO is, has anything to gain by getting everyone to take to lock down or to ah, but social distance. What, what about a vaccine? What about a vaccine? Something to gain. The WHO recommends numerous vaccines and they make money off of the vaccines that... When you say make money, you're saying the WHO is like a for-profit business in your mind? It seems like it. It seems like their connections is pretty much promoting big pharmaceutical companies. Okay. Or the CDC. I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the CDC. Yeah. So, so the CDC- I mean, the World, the World Health Organization has been so clear that um, testing, contact tracing, and isolating are the only way you safely open up. From this, they've been super clear, and no country has successfully opened up without testing, contact tracing, and isolating. Um, in fact, you'll note that at the White House, when they had um, a couple of cases in the last week or two, what they did was quickly testing, contact tracing, and isolating, which is so great that they're able to go ahead and do that and keep operating. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all enjoy? Uh, that, that same type of experience. And I think there's it, it's so hard to ramp up that many tests and that big of an sure. operation. And I wish it was quicker and it's frustrating and I'd love to shit on the UK government, but just seeing how hard it is to ramp up a very small food delivery operation, I right. appreciate that that's probably even more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But but like, I think, um, I think while I... I'm reluctant to trust doctors and healthcare advice in general and stuff. Um, I believe that vaccines prevent horrible diseases. I think that um, vaccines do not cause autism. Um, I think there's been 
so much peer-reviewed, like retrospective studies that have just proven it to me that there's a correlation, but not a causation. Vaccines are given around the time that kids start to show autistic symptoms. It's just shown in peer-reviewed science, and there's so much misinformation out about that. And, and yeah, pharmaceutical people are getting rich. I don't think the WHO is promoting a worldwide need for a vaccine just to get tons of money out of this. Like, I, I just have too many friends that have friends and family dead here to believe that's true. Like, why are 17 people in one care home dying in a week if it's not that bad? Like, yeah, I hear we you. probably actually need a vaccine. <laughs> yeah, you know? I hear I will you. take that vaccine just like I took the whooping cough one and all the other ones. Gladly. Yeah. Well, I think I do think that the the argument for me um, comes back to the idea of herd immunity and the idea of the vulnerable populations. And um, I guess what isn't what isn't clear to me is that it's productive to um, isolate uh, healthy people. Um, or people that okay, so, are yeah. at low risk. The problem is you don't know who's healthy. You don't know who's healthy. So well, sure, P I'm I'm healthy. I know that I'm. But healthy. you don't know. You could have you, you could have coronavirus right now. Yes, correct. So that's why I would prefer that you don't go wander around and mingle with people. I understand that, but it seems like it would be easier if I wander around and mingle with you, you are also healthy. You're under 65. You don't have pre-existing conditions. Your chances of, of, you know, having a serious reaction to this are low. Okay. So here's, here's, I think here's why. And I, I don't know, again, now we're into bike shed theory area here. Cause I don't know, but I think the reason is the virus is so contagious and so crafty in how it spreads. It's really, really easy to spread that if you have two populations that you're trying to keep it from spreading between the healthy and the vulnerable, okay, yeah. the more cases you have among the healthy are going to mean the more opportunities for it to get into the vulnerable. Now, it's, right. been, in the, it's been in the UK for two months and millions of pounds and tons of experts and people smarter than me, maybe even smarter than you, Gabe, whoa, are, whoa, whoa, are, whoa, thinking whoa. About, are thinking about how to keep it out of care homes. Okay. Yeah. And they've still not been able to do that. Okay. Because it's hard. Just because so, of the staff and the food. Well, I mean, some, the food has to get there. The clothes have to get there. Somebody has to clean yeah. the toilets. Like, um, you know, that's why they're care homes. You need <laughs> people there to care. And then Right. Now they're looking at the problems here where like the care home workers are typically people that are really struggling financially and they're not well paid and their sick, their statutory sick pay is much lower. So they're reluctant to get tests because they'll be put on statutory sick pay and sent home and they can't feed their kids. So yes. now they suspect. So there's like a million institutional practical things. Um, you know, one thing I learned headhunting for 20 years because I'd, I'd kind of look in the window of all these businesses and like, I think of myself as some smart guy. So I'd always just like see instantly 10 ways you could do it better. And I <laughs> learned pretty early in my career that like, yeah, actually that dude's been doing that business for like 20 years. And he thought yeah. about that about 19 years and 11 months ago and yeah. figured out why that's not a great idea. And that's why they do it this way. <laughs> right. And I think it's just one of those, like, I don't think, um, 
I don't think if we if we just let it spread among us, like I think it'll rip through us. I think it'll have more consequences for healthy people than we expect. And I don't think there's any way we could segregate the vulnerable population. It's not realistic. Well, I understand. I I, I understand that. But I guess um, it brings up a, a, a sort of a crazy uh, precedent for me that if this is our response to a virus then is this going to be the response we need in the future every couple years or every flu season even i mean if you look at the numbers of deaths from respiratory illnesses like say in italy for example 2020 if you just looked at the numbers of people that died from respiratory illnesses in 2020 during coronavirus it would be sort of on par with what happened in 2017, 2018 flu season. In Italy. Yeah. And, but bear in mind that the whole time Italy was completely locked down. Well, also that. Imagine what it would have been. Well, but still, if you look at the people that died over 90% of them were people that had preexisting conditions and it, it wasn't like a bunch of healthy people died. It, it is this vulnerable well, population that gets hit hard. And I agree, this virus seems like it's scarier than the flu for those people, for sure. I think, and for regular people, though, I mean, they're definitely tying a whole, like, you know, there's the kidney failure stories and the heart failure. And, like, it's attacking different people in different ways. I saw a thing the other day about vitamin D. Like, they're, they found some statistically significant tie between severe symptoms and vitamin D deficiency. Um, and like, ironically, the people in Northern countries with less sun had more vitamin D because they eat it and take it because it's not sunny. Huh? <laughs> well, and, and wealthier people in general. I mean, I've seen that broken down yeah. ethnic people yeah. and minorities generally have, have lower levels and, and certainly, yeah, it seems like are more susceptible. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I didn't even, I need to reread it, um, but I saw an article last night from Nature about like uh, machine learning, crunched all the data, some machine learning machine, and figured out like um, sort of an eight-step way to figure out who's likely to have a high comorbidity or who's likely to have a severe case, and so maybe that could accelerate treatments. Like they're definitely still learning a lot about it. But um, I do trust that there's so much resistance from so many sides of the political political spectrum to closing everything and closing schools. And like closing schools here in Scotland is a disaster. Scotland's very poor. It's lots of alcoholism. Yeah, dude. Um, the childcare situation right. stuff. Like. The, for key workers, their childcare, like they were really reluctant to do that. And this is a pretty left leaning place, yeah. you know, right leaning places. They don't want to close because of the economy and the shareholders and all the other reasons. And those are all great reasons. And so I don't think anybody like, ha ha, let's make this master plan to trick everybody to close everything, to sell a few more vaccines. It just doesn't make sense to me, dude. It yeah. doesn't like, how could you get, countries that never agree on anything to all (laughs) all have to shut down (laughs) right but to go back to the um to go back to the idea of of protecting that vulnerable population um 
I guess it seems to me that, uh, well, I guess I'm just not sure that it's, it's, it's effective. Um, so, so the whole what, idea was, the whole idea was like, effect, effective, like countries have effectively combated coronavirus. Like we've seen it. There are countries back up and running. Right. Yeah. And so what did it take? It took locking down, getting a test trace and isolate program in place, hiring tens of thousands of contact tracers, setting up drive through testing stations and tracking down every case and putting some sort of barriers in place to high level transmission, like limiting the size of gatherings, moving forward, changing how you do business a little bit like Taiwan's up and open. Wuhan got six new cases the other day and made a plan to test all 11 million inhabitants in 10 days. If we're wondering like what it takes to get open back up, but I just think the like, well, closing is so costly that we need to open. We've seen what happens with that too. Like it'll get bad enough that you're going to close and then it's going to be worse. And I, I guess think I'm that's not... what's about to happen in Arizona. That's what I'm, that's where it's, the question is in my mind. I, I see the the measures you're talking about, and I understand that those are better implemented in countries that have better systems in place. And um, and that and people I, will listen. You know, I think a lot sure. of it. The reason Western, Western countries, the UK and the US in particular, are struggling is because you can't tell people to do shit over here. Well, you could also especially you, over there. <laughs> but you could also um well so so that's one way that it seems that countries have dealt with it and perhaps that's been effective but i guess i'm not sure that um this thing isn't just running at so, some sort of a natural course sure so it will it will run a natural course but the natural course um is going to be like a lot a lot a lot of people dead that otherwise wouldn't be dead. And I'm convinced of that just by the um, X, like total deaths, all causes against the running five-year average. The ones I've seen here, the ones I've seen in France, the ones I've seen in Italy. Um, it causes a lot of people to die. Um, it's also like just really expensive. And at, while it runs its course, if you're trying to protect the vulnerable populations, like I don't think you really can. Like, I just think it's one of those super inconvenient truths that, like, this thing sucks. And, yeah, you know, nature doesn't care about what our economy or any of that shit at all. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's, it's horrible. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm super frustrated here that they're not just locking down more. Like, I finally saw an ad for uh, contact tracers. So it's like a combination of medical professionals and just people to work the phones and then some people to work with apps and stuff and, uh, you know, um, do it that way. Like British Columbia, where, where my dad lives, bent the curve, like they had a pretty bad outbreak and they bent the curve pretty fast. And now they're already starting to open back up. And I kind of like what they're doing. I think a lot of countries are looking at what they're doing, which is like, if you're going to open up any business, you just have to have a detailed plan and risk assessment about how you're going to keep any infections from happening there. And so like the first business to open where he lives is some botanical garden. 
and he walked through it and they have like marshals standing off to the side that can see every inch of everywhere and like you it's only one way and you can't go anywhere near anybody else and if someone touches a handrail like a guy just runs out with bleach <laughs> wipes it instantly and like i mean it sounds horrible but it's like to me i'm like hmm here i see businesses opening you know that say they have like a plan and i mean it's sad to me that everybody has to think they're essential here right now like there's not many businesses that are i saw driving lessons happening the other day when i was out delivering food like an instructor and a student in a car doing a driving lesson i'm like hmm, all essential businesses are closed but uh teenagers gotta get his license <laughs> like everything's <laughs> essential <laughs> yeah. yeah i i i think it takes it's gonna take a lot of rigor and um just like frustration for us to get there i hear i'm finding running around town like i deal with all these different charities and i'm picking up nappies and dropping off food and coordinating with all these people and everywhere i go i can't get people to not come up to me and hand me stuff or come two meters to me or try to reach in the van and i'm just like no <laughs> constantly i'm like no get the hell away from me like i last yesterday i was super grouchy about it i brought a measuring tape with me just pulled it out like bro two meters you know yeah yeah i was like if you're close enough for me to punch you in the head then you're within two meters Right. <laughs> you know, and so if you're following the rules, you should be 100% safe from getting punched in the head by me. <laughs> Can't right. even reach you. <laughs> but it's just frustrating that, like, even people that are really woke about it and, like, oh, yeah, I got my mask on and shit. And, you know, they're, they're just like, whatever. I'm like, no, they're the guidance here for workplaces is frustrating. It says maintain social distancing where possible. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. So everybody's like, well, it's not possible. And I'm like, no, no, you could just set that box down and then walk away. And then I could go pick it up. Like, right. you don't need to walk over and talk to me. But when you do weak worded guidance that just says where possible, that just means do whatever the fuck you want. Totally. Yeah. Right. And so I'm, I sound grumpy about it. I, ha I had another one. If you want to hear a weird, uh, impossible social distancing situation. So this is one to think about with protecting vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. So I deliver food to these high-rise slums, okay? Total fucking nightmare, dude. And uh, you buzz in, and then you, you wait, and there's, like, on some of them, there's a sign on the elevator door that, like, social distancing, only one household in the elevator at a time. Makes sense, right? So some of them don't even have those signs, but I'm not getting in an elevator with anybody. Hell no. So I wait for an elevator. Um... I get in it, I wait for one by myself on the ground floor. I get in it, so one that comes to mind, I go up to the 14th floor, uh, find the flat, drop the food box, knock and run, uh, get back to the elevators, push the button. And this this is like a 30 story building or whatever. You know, every elevator that's coming up or down has people in it now, cause I'm in the middle. So the door's open, the door's closed, they go <laughs> down and they have this look on their face like, every floor they're stopping and there's people <laughs> waiting to get on that nobody gets on right like somebody needs to reprogram these elevators to just pick you up and take you all the way without stopping they didn't express well they just need to all be expresses right they need to be like once someone gets on and makes a selection it goes straight there i'm sure they could program that but it's not so you just stand there for like 20 minutes <gasps> every elevator's full so then it's like okay fucking stairwell right yeah 
stairwell's got a lot of fucking people in it, dude. Wow. <laughs> had to run by about 60 people to get down. So like, that's no good, man. It's just like, so you think about your vulnerable grandma up there, or like, you know, right. there's probably, how many vulnerable people live in that building? Like a lot. Like, right. you know, what do they got a little dog? What, someone's going to come walk their dog? Well, that person's probably bringing coronavirus. Like take away their dog. Or, you know, they're going to be alone for what, a year in there? Like, come on. I know. know. Well, I guess that's part of it's it's difficult any way you cut it to protect yeah. people. Yeah. Um, but I guess it seems to me that at some point you're going to have to allow people to resume interacting with each other. And the question to me, so the whole flatten the curve thing, the idea behind that was to prevent the healthcare systems from being overloaded, right? The so idea I think, was- I think in, you know, they didn't articulate what the idea was, but like, I'm happy to say the first minister of Scotland articulated that the only way out of this is uh, locking down now, getting test and trace in place, getting the R number down low enough below one, and now it's crept back up to one. So total disaster here, by the way. But uh, and then having a very robust test and trace and isolate system in place that and get us out seems... of this, and, and then resume, um, you know, smaller gatherings. She said she talked about this week, like setting up a social bubble that might be like you and ten other households. Right. So those are the people you're going to interact with. So like they're looking at different ways to make this easier for people and to move towards opening. But she's like, you know, there's no economy without the public health side. Like there's no like, we're gonna reopen the economy. Like the public health disaster will crush the economy if everybody just reopens. I'm convinced of that. Like every public health official at every country basically on earth hasn't shut things down and gone to either test, trace and isolate or keep it locked down until the R number gets low enough. For no reason. It's because the alternative is even worse, I think. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that all those guys are weighing that up. I, yeah, but I, I I do think you gotta go back to the idea that from the beginning there was no expectation that anything we can do is going to change sort of the overall trajectory of the virus. Like the overall number of people that are going to get it. You know, like the that's how that's my understanding at least of how viruses work is they basically have it's a seasonal thing. It's associated with the temperature. Well, this is this isn't um of so much a function of season. I don't think the coronavirus from whatever end. But just to stop you for one second there like how would you explain a city of 11 million people in China, okay? which is the most populous nation on earth, being the first hit, having a full-blown hotspot outbreak, right? And, you know, maybe they're lying, but 6,000 deaths, okay? Maybe they're lying. Maybe it's 12,000. Maybe it's 18,000. Like, UK's at 50,000 already. You know, the US is at 88,000. Like, how, how did they do it? Like, if it's going to run its course and kill that number of people no matter what you do, then China couldn't have done that. South Korea definitely couldn't have did what they did. And I think it's like, uh, I can send you the link to the American in South Korea who's like, damn, like, here's here's what it took. Like, he had to travel somewhere. 
and it was like, okay, you got to do a two week quarantine while you're there. We're putting this app on your phone. Your phone has to stay charged all the time. We have to, you know, know where you're at. Um, you're going to get tested periodically, like anywhere you go that there's a bunch of people, there's temperature checks on the way, like the app on your phone. If anyone that you came in like Bluetooth contact distance with, if they tested positive later, your app goes from green to red and you can't move anywhere. And so you're tested and like, huge pain in the ass like huge clamp down on civil liberties and all that but like yeah they actually didn't supposedly even have ten thousand people dead in this china in south oh in china right wuhan was wuhan was claiming six thousand six hundred i don't really believe that number um yeah. south korea was is like only a few thousand like three thousand or something yeah. you know and um and it's wild how those numbers got our attention. Oh, holy shit, look at this virus. About what? Damn, you know, how those numbers got our attention way back in the day. Like, whoa, 9,000 people between South right. Korea and China. And now it's like, <laughs> dude, it's like 9,000, you know? Yeah. But I think, like, yeah, it's not just going to run its course necessarily and kill however many it's going to kill. We actually have tools to contain it. But a lot of those tools center around behavioral science and public right. policy communication and trust in public health officials and right. so i think it does probably get me fired up when i see questioning of public health officials not because i don't think maybe some of the stuff they do is questionable but because i think our success against this is directly tied to our faith in them and like our encouraging of each other to follow good guidance and stuff yeah. so i discourse is like what america's all about i know a lot of the things that are what america is all about are maybe not super ideal in a pandemic <laughs> <You know? laughs> i mean it just is what it is like but uh i think that's why it triggers me a little when people are like well maybe it would just be better herd immunity and like oh because i know the total wing nuts that are just like out to own the libs and are walking around in their amosexual cosplay outfits protesting at the governor's office and shit are just glomming on to any of that discourse they can to like substantiate their ridiculous selfish actions yeah but i gotta say i i i find myself agreeing with a lot of the things that are coming out of crazy people's mouths these days um which is kind of a weird. I, I've, well, I've, I think that means that I think that means that you're nuts, Gabe. Apparently, it's easier to put on. It's easier to put on slippers than carpet the world. I mean, you've just said yourself you agree with things that crazy people say. Right. Which I, <laughs> so my my takeaway is that not all things crazy people say are untrue. That's true. That's true. And the think, thing about you think a lot of a lot of what I'm saying is untrue. Uh. No, no, I don't. I totally understand your perspective, and that's why. Do you think, it, you think it's true that faith in our public health institutions um, and like adherence to guidance probably gives us a better shot against something like this than everybody doing whatever they think is best? Ideally, yes. But I have serious questions about the public health institutions that we are supposed to listen to sure oh me too that's why like me and ryan had a big talk about the bike co-op 
when this was starting. And I don't know that he's done it so much, but I told him like the bike co-ops like an act is actually an institution that people love and believe. And I think it's really important to share uh, good, reliable public health guidance that's like actionable and simple. Mm-hmm. Every institution that that people trust, like in this age when nobody believes the government or they don't trust the state government or even Delta County or, you know, I think most people kind of trust the town better than they used to, but the town's had its problems. Like I think places like the library, the volunteer ambulance, I mean, as small as it is, the bike co-op, like I was hoping the learning council, like, yeah, you know, stay home, save lives. Like the economic situation's a bummer. Here's some resources to help you get through it. Here's some resources to like help you comply with this really important public health guidance here's the right way to wash your hands here's the right way to wear a mask here's why you might want to wear a mask here's why you might not here's you know what kind of hand sanitizer to use make sure and don't believe like fake public health stuff about if you like eat pepper and mustard it'll cure coronavirus or you know because there's a lot of that going around even some yeah. of the charities I work with here, people are like, oh, yeah, if you just take this black powder tea, it totally cures it. And I'm, right. these are people I'm working with right now. And I'm just like, oh, like, please, three meters away. Right. <laughs> At least. Like two meters isn't enough for you. I'm going to need three meters. <laughs> one of the challenges I'm facing is the or in this argument, one of the challenges and in, in this discussion, I should say. Yeah. One of the challenges, I think, is the numbers and the test itself. And if you look at the if you look at the example of of China, say, or South Korea, and then you look you contrast it to the United States, I think there are a lot of factors that go into making those numbers. And the first one is the test itself and what it's actually testing for. And oh, you mean like who's had it or who has it right now or who has had it in the past? Exactly. Yeah. And there yeah, seems I, to be yeah. a lot. I think there's a me. variance. There's a variance in the numbers from each country based on their testing criteria, the kinds of tests, how many tests, all those things. But, but most of the my understanding is that most of the tests come from a sample of uh, fluid from a few patients' lungs in China. That that's the sample that is was used to create the sort of blueprint of RNA or whatever that then the PCR oh, test sure. is based on. Sure. And so it's like maybe the coronavirus has mutated since those patients and now we're testing for the wrong thing. That's possible. It's also possible that we're testing for something that was never proven to actually be associated with COVID-19. Hmm. Um, I, I would be really surprised to find out that like enough microbiologists around the world are incompetent enough or crooked enough to like knowingly Hopefully not knowingly, but I just don't, like make a test that doesn't test for the right thing. And I think well, I don't I think know that they have to be crooked at all to 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 use a test like I mean I, I think that the the test is you know it's the PCR test. No, I mean some 
I mean to make and certify and do all the peer review of the actual tests. Well, like, that's the thing is it hasn't. The CDC has authorized this test to be used. It hasn't officially gained approval. Yeah. So yeah, it's I don't never... know. Yeah, I don't know much about the Abbott Labs tests that the U.S. is using, but I'm going to say like. I might have doubts about any one of them, but I'm just not going to believe that like the public health officials at the finest universities in Scotland and France and sure. Germany and all of them are like, these are the numbers and these tests are legit. And these are the tests we're telling our governments to buy and use by the millions. And we're testing for the wrong thing or something that doesn't even have to do with the disease. Like, I think we're getting into the car mechanic area again. We're like, dude, I just I don't know, Gabe, because get, we're, get under that we're talking about resources being allocated in a very specific fashion that's based on this test. If you talk about the contact tracing, for example, and the quarantine. Not, like, not everyone's using the same test, though. Like, there's, right. I don't think we're using the Abbott Labs test in the UK. I don't so. know the specifics, but my understanding is that it's a, it's a test for a specific segment of rna it's a signature yeah so yeah it looks for it looks for a piece it like it, the reagents will change color or something if it has a piece of that virus in it any piece. correct yeah yeah and i and guess so like what i'm know, just pointing I know out the first that, test was, was germany i think and then now they're making them in like france and switzerland and china obviously makes a lot of their own tests and abbott labs in the u.s is making tests but they're all different tests and they can't right so that's so that's my challenge is sort of fundamentally a lot of uh, a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of policy is being based on something that um, to me hasn't really satisfied a scientific. Um, have you ever heard of Koch's postulates? Yeah, I don't. Yes, I don't think they're going just off that test though. Like I think they're corroborating it with the with things like the total death all causes numbers and like ICU beds like in Scotland they you could look on Scottish government's page they publish a lot of data every day that they make public on this I think better than other governments but it, it it's total deaths all causes it's deaths attributed to all respiratory stuff um it's how many ICU beds are in use like hospital usage hospital usage for non covid stuff so like obviously that's way down um and uh, like that data is available from enough countries to see that in the places where the R number got really high, where like in the U.S. when it started, I think I think when I freaked out was when it was at about 30 percent a day. And it was just like I just did some quick math and like, holy shit. And I remember my brother being like, yeah, but it's only nine in Arizona. And I'm like, yeah, but 30 percent a day takes you from nine to five hundred thousand in five weeks. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I think that, uh, that all, they're looking at all that data together. There's people that are really smart at doing that kind of analysis on behalf of all these governments and mm -hmm. that they're not just doing it based on just testing of who actually has COVID. Um, they're looking at a the lot of public on. health, a lot of public health indicators. Well, the numbers of how many ICU beds are taken and available is not based on COVID testing. The sure. number of total deaths, all causes, has nothing to do with COVID testing. Nothing. Right. So there's enough things that corroborate the story that the COVID testing is 
telling us in enough countries around the world that it's got to be grounded in enough level of reality that like, yeah, it's a super serious public health thing that's killing loads of people, that's giving people uh, a permanent life-altering illness and disability, um, reduced lung capacity, kidney failure, strokes now supposedly, um, that like, yeah, it sucks. I totally don't want it to be true, but yeah, I think it's real to some degree now. Is testing a thousand percent accurate? It's I don't even think it's like seventy percent accurate. I think they have to get three tests to get to seventy percent. Um, which I was wondering at the beginning when Trump's like, "We did fifteen thousand tests yesterday." I was like, "I bet my bottom dollar that was five thousand people that got three tests each." <laughs> Anything. <laughs> That's why statistics are tricky. Yeah, they are. You know, I yeah. I think part of what's challenging for me is to see the effort so the solutions um being offered are seem to be things like the contact tracing um and isolating um and then perhaps a vaccine and there doesn't seem to be much talk about uh treatment um and the body's immune system and looking at the people that have tested positive, for example, and have no symptoms. Well, there are um, definitely lots of doctors around the world that are looking at that. I think you're not reading about it because they don't have, you know, conclusive evidence that they're ready to publish. But or, I'm seeing so, that. I mean, supposedly the treatment with the recovered people's blood transfusion helps in some cases, I've read. Um, it turns out the drug that Trump said was a game changer is mostly not helping people. I think now that it's gotten further along in study, it's like that the hydrochloric first study. Thing? Yeah, that that quack in France's study, like that guy. I mean, he published it in his own journal that he's the editor of, and then they found out he excluded mostly the patients that died, and like his methodology was just a complete joke. And then so now people are reproducing and looking into that, and there's no evidence that it reduces mortality in uh, COVID patients in any peer-reviewed journal that's credible. Like his was quote-unquote peer-reviewed, but publishing your own paper in the in your own journal that you're the editor-in-chief of is like super shady to start with. And then he has a track record of fraud. So like he's just a guy that's published fraudulent shit. So I think once he got into independent peer-review country, uh, it didn't stand up. But um, yeah, I mean, I think... I think it's really easy to get people to believe what they want to believe. If they're already dying for their, oh man, I just want to open the paper and hear that there's a fucking cure for this. So if you Trump know, walks up funny. there. And, I feel like most of the people, <laughs> it's so funny because my impression is that people seem to actually want, are kind of dying for the opposite. They want this to go on as long as possible. And I think oh it's, God, not what, me huh? Not me. <laughs> right. Well, I think we're kind of in these, these weird, very different realities. I think it has a lot to do with where we're living. Like, I'm living out in Vermont, you know, in rural Vermont, and you're living in the middle of the city. And it's very... Because to me, I see kind of the opposite in a lot of people, which seems to be this... Um, they seem to want this crisis to be as dire as possible, 
and they seem to want it to go on as long as possible. And they seem to not want to look at any actual signs of maybe this is, maybe we're getting through this, you know, maybe the numbers are going down. Maybe, maybe things, um, so it's interesting. I, I do think it, and it, I'm sure it is, it both are completely true. I think people have something about this is bringing up some very fundamental thing inside of us right now. It, so, yeah, I heard something, somebody smarter than me on a podcast said it's the most unifying thing in human history. So there's been no event in human right. history that this, this percentage of people on the globe even knew about. Like, right. even when World War II was going putting on, our attention there, on was, it. there was shit loads of people that didn't even know World War II was happening. Right. Like, <laughs> now, like, seriously. Right. But now, like, everybody knows about this. Right. Like, nobody doesn't know about this yet. Right. And, uh, and then it's also divisive because people have different opinions about what we should do. Um, you know, I think, I really think, to a degree, there's a lot of prisoners' dilemma going on. Did I talk to you about that one? Yeah, you did. Did you look that up? I did, yeah. Um, yeah. So I just think it's one of those, like, if we all actually a hundred percent could like comply with a total lockdown and social distancing for 14 days, like if we could actually pull it off, yes. that would be it. It'd be over. Yeah. Now we can't, now we can't. So it's like, okay. are we going to say, well, we can't. So fuck it. Or are we going to go for the best we can and then put ourselves in a position to maybe dig the rest of the way out of it using other tools? Like I hear you, that's man. That's a hard but I think a lot of people are making a decision of what's right for them personally and not realizing that what in a pandemic, what's right for the meekest is what's right for you. Because we can't we can't stop this thing from spreading between populations like no one besides like New Zealand or some islands and shit have right. achieved that. And uh, it, it's it's really hard to change in our minds from a zero-sum game to a game where like we all win or we all lose mm -hmm. um and people don't want to be on a team with everybody a lot of people don't like they're like oh no i don't want those losers on my team i want to be my own team and it's that's true. not where we are we're in the prisoner's dilemma so i mean I, I think about like in glasgow there's a big controversy now they the contractor that's kind of like the halliburton here that takes care of housing and stuff for asylum seekers. They're paid by the government to give them the 35 pounds a week and put them in a flat. Uh, they realized that uh, because the hotels were up for grabs for the homeless, they could just start moving them there. So they started taking people out of their flats. Like, oh, we'll put you in a hotel. You can eat at a buffet. And, uh, you know, there's no social distancing. Why? Because the there. hotels would be cheaper for the... Well, not only cheaper, for free and they're like we're feeding them so we don't need to give them their 35 pounds a week so they so they stop paying the rent on the flat and oh, stop giving them their yeah. 35 pounds in the hotel so now you think about asylum seekers and refugee camps around the world being put in your own hotel room and given three square meals a day and having soap and shampoo and towels and maybe even a laundry service isn't the worst you know <laughs> it's not the worst thing i could think of however here in Scotland, we tend to believe that proper observance of guidelines and social distancing is key to keeping this thing in check until we can get contact tracing going. And if you take hundreds and hundreds of people and put them in the city center 
and have them living in a buffet line tea station format where they're all touching the same surfaces and open the same doors, you're going to have an outbreak that's going to kill local Scottish people's grandmothers and uncle and friend that had heart surgery and so-and-so that's a cancer survivor. And there's no way, there's no way to keep it to, oh, well, that'll kill the asylum seekers, but not us. Like, no, no, they're in city center. They're walking around. They're touching handrails. They're breathing on shit. You're breathing on that same shit. Like, we don't have the ability. If we could keep it from transmitting, we would have already beat it. And so I think it's a big failure of people to realize that it's not a zero-sum game. It's all of us. It's like, no, no, we need to give everyone the tools to social distance and stop this. And like, oh, well, I'm in my nice flat with my nice garden and I can play football with my kids outside. Look at those guys in the hotel. Like, no, no, that's still your grandma going to die. Right. <laughs> you know? I agree, man. That and it, yeah, shit. Prisoner's dilemma. Right. Well, I yeah. know that you have to go soon. Yeah, uh, I gotta go deliver dinner to one of those hotels. It sucks, dude. This is my least favorite stop because this one has like tons of not asylum seeker homeless in it, and it's just like a chain smoking crowd party out front when I pull up. It's just not even anything, and. I, I pull up in the van, put my mask, my face shield on, get my gloves on, and then I just glare. <laughs> I just glare out the window until the seas part. And then I just get out and give everybody the, like, you don't want none of this smoke death stare until they back even further away. And then I, I, like, get them to open the hotel doors and back away, and I just set the food in the doorway. <laughs> get the fuck out there. <laughs> That's great. I've been working working on my desk here. I was thinking about a jumping cactus on a string. You could do like poi, you know, the hippie fire twirling. Yeah. But if you just had a three meter string with a couple of balls of jumping cactus on the end, I think what, motherfuckers would back up. What's jumping cactus? Uh, it's a kind of cactus in Arizona that just real bad, like it, it's like a segmented tubular clumps and like whole clumps will come with you and get on you and when the needle goes in you, it instantly barbs and it's a huge pain in the ass to get out. It's painful poison in there. It's Wait, where like is the this? In Arizona? Yeah, in Mexico. It, it reproduces by falling on rats and stuff, kills them, and then uses their body for fertilizer and grows a clone plant. Like that's how it reproduces. It just like gets in you and kills you. So I was just thinking, twirling, jumping cactus, keep people away. <laughs> Maybe like a two meter long uh, little cattle prod with just like a nice shock on the end. Yeah. You know, so let people know I mean business. Yeah. <laughs> or just a big sign that says I have coronavirus. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people wouldn't wouldn't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. There's like Corona parties, supposedly. Uh, the news from Paonia's dire, like Ryan saying. People are just like out and about and not giving That's a shit. That's what I've like heard. Some people, yeah, yeah. Ryan said there was a rumor that he had left town just because they had stayed home. Everybody's like, dude, I heard Ryan left town. He's like, no, no, still here. Just stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's bad. Yeah. Well, he was telling me about somebody walking the streets, just offering anybody who wanted one a hug the other day. Man, I'm a hugger, but shit, dude. I think we could just well, bite the bullet. I yeah, uh, God bless Are you, you man. Huh? Are you hugging people? I'm hugging my wife. Nice. And uh, my brother and his gal. We've kind of made our uh, little, uh, little bubble. That's our bubble. Um, cool. 
it's interesting. I actually was just talking about this, how I, I'm starting to like some things it's starting to open up around here a little bit. Um, and now the reg, the recommendation is you can have gatherings up to 25 people and, uh, it's. I'm starting to get a little bit. Uh, you're shaking your head. Uh, tell me what's happened that makes anyone safer from coronavirus uh, between when lockdown started and now. You guys have like mass testing and contact tracing and. No, just like time. The so, virus is nothing. The cases nothing. have gone down. So there's how how many cases do you guys have active cases right now? I'd like zero. In in Vermont, there's no active cases. Something like that, like or I, yeah, I think it was, it was Sunday. It was no new cases. Oh wow, that's awesome! No new I didn't cases, know that. no new deaths. Can people can people still drive up there from New York and stuff? Uh, I believe so. The recommendation is if you come from out of state, you're supposed to quarantine for two weeks. Yeah. That sounds good. That's better than I thought you guys were doing. Like it's it's hard to know without like looking and studying the data in each place. Like I pretty much mostly been following New York because my brother lives there and Arizona because my mom and my brother live there. And I'm just so dismayed at what I see going on in Arizona. Like the res has the worst outbreak anywhere per capita. It's not a lot of people, but they're screwed. And then Flagstaff and the I-40. It's like let's just open all the restaurants, fire it back up, like. They're going to be screwed on the rest. You know, they, they don't even have water to wash their hands. Most of the homes there. So. Dude, I feel you, Gabe. And I just, I'm so freaking proud of to know you and to see the work that you're doing to help people out right now. Um, I think it's oh, wonderful. I want to go back to being, I'm trying so hard to go back to being bike Santa. This sucks, yeah. dude. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I know, but but somebody's got to do it. I mean, you're you're really throwing down and just jumping into where you can help. And I'm lucky we've we've got a lot of resources and to have like a cool boss and a cool co- you know organization that's just like what do you think we should do that sounds great let's do it and so I feel like there's a lot of responsibility to do my best but man I don't enjoy this like I'm I'm freaked out running into these high-ride slums and like having to come into contact with so many people every day and terrified terrified that some of the actual vulnerable people that I deliver food to are going to get sure. it because of me and I'm just like ugh. I talked to my friend the other day, by the way, he's a nurse, and and I ran through my whole procedure with her. And I was like, you know, I kind of designed this based on my own research. What do you think? And so it's like an an order. I do things. Here's when I put on my gloves, handle this, touch that, gloves off, sanitizer, open the door, sanitizer, back in the van, you know, like, and she told me it was pretty good, but she's like, your shoes, dude, you should really be bleaching your shoes before you get back in the van or before you get in your house. She's like, a lot of it gets transmitted from people like somebody sneezes on the ground, you walk through it, you walk in your house or you walk in somebody or somebody touches something, you know, it can go from surface to surface to surface for hours. And she's like, if you, if you do everything you're doing and they did your shoes, you'd probably be good. You know, I don't know. You just got to do your best. Yeah. I heard in, uh, I read, I was reading, they have these trays like at facilities that are worried about contamination. They use, it's just like a little shallow bleach solution. You just like bleep, bleep, dip your soles in before you walk in the next place. Yep. Might have Make to some nice, that. some <laughs> nice golden, golden footprints on people's carpets. Yeah. Oh, I just wish I had a robot I could send everywhere to do everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. if we have, if we do another one of these, I want to I want to talk about morality and the morality of fleeing during a pandemic. So I have been saying really strongly that nobody should go anywhere. Like just because you'd rather be in another place, don't don't leave where you are. It's a pandemic. Everybody should stay where they're at. Like you shouldn't go up to Vermont to escape New York City because you are taking coronavirus potentially to Vermont. You know. It's like everybody There's a just lot of people with- around here that have been uh, pretty upset about seeing New York plates, and there sure. there are wealthy kind of summer communities that have reached pretty much their summer population in the past couple months, way ahead of time. You know, because people are just getting yeah. the hell out of the cities. So here they've said you can't you can't like travel to the highlands or the islands or go to your vacation home. Like just don't do it. There's not enough hospital capacity up there for the people there. Don't add to it. Um, so what do you but I want to have a talk where you make me feel better about my intense desire to flee <laughs> the French countryside where the, I actually have a little country house there. We could we could just do a two week quarantine and you we do? could be in the countryside. Oh, yeah. My mom got that years and years and years ago. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. But in Scotland, such a lovely. No, in south of France. So I thought, uh, you know, I'm a French citizen, so I'm allowed to flee there. Yeah. And. You know, he's married to me, so probably come. And yeah, it doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do. But damn, I'd really like to be out of the city. <laughs> well, you got you got to take a break. You know, you got to take care of yourself first and foremost, right? You got to be able to keep prisoner's going. dilemma. Prisoner's dilemma, Gabe. <laughs> there is no myself. <laughs> yeah, but you're no you're no good to help if you get if you get sick or if you get burnt out. But it looks like you're. I know. You're I could no. Me. I'm saying I could rest. I could rest here. Which I think I'll do. I'll try to take some time off and rest. But also, I'm not talking about I want to go on vacation there. I'm talking about I want to flee the city. I hear that. I'm not a city person. Right. (laughs) And here you are. I don't blame you. Well, God bless you for the work you're doing, man. It's really, really impressive and inspirational. And um, thanks for chatting. For me, man. I haven't seen. I haven't heard from her forever. I hope she's doing great. And she's doing uh, good, we'll man. party in. We'll party in Peonia one of these days, man. I would love that. I definitely. That's the plan for sure. All right, man. We're working on getting an online poker going. Harass Ryan about it. Oh, he's in fun. Of it. Lacking. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, it'd be really fun. Get Ryan to do it. Like kick his ass. He's supposed to be in charge, but he's slacking. Oh, you can't put him in charge of something like that. Are you kidding me? Well, I just don't have time, man. I can't. I, I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. All right, well, I'll take talk care to you of soon. yourself. All right, man. See you, man. Later. Okay. Bye, Gabe. Thanks. Yes, sir. Gabe Vest, goalkeeper, extraordinaire, bicycle rider, and aid deliverer. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to Gabe for taking the time. Check out the website for the podcast at gaberobertsart.com. Uh, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a leave a rating or a review. Boy, it's been a while since I've said that. Um, send an email to gaberoberts at gmail.com or do none of the above and carry on with your life. Take this in, whatever. I'm not going to like tell you to be more thoughtful or whatever. Y'all are doing great. Um, 
yeah, just thanks thanks for tuning in and being interested to listen to conversations like this. Uh, until next time, my dear friends, adios.